Chapter 18 of A Winter of Content by Laura Lee Davidson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The May woods are full of color. The crimson of the young maple sprays, the bronze and yellows of the new birch, and basswood leaves reflecting the tints of autumn. The brakes are unclenching their little woolly brown fists. The new ferns are uncurling their furry pale green spirals. The dwarf ginseng's leaves carpet the damp hollows. From their clusters rise innumerable feathery balls of bloom. The little wild ginseng holds its treasure safe, the small edible tuber hidden far underground. There's no long-nailed caliban to dig for it here on the island. The atrillium flowers are turning pink. After about two weeks of snowy whiteness, they have changed to a beautiful rose color, and oh, the perfume that comes blown across those far-stretching beds of trillium. No garden of summer roses was ever half so sweet. On the mainland trail that winds along the shore from Drapos to Forets, the ground is blue with violets and yellow with adder's tongue, straw-colored bellwort, and the downy yellow violet. Wild columbine beckons from the rocky crannies. Bishop's cap and Solomon's seal wave in the thickets. The wet fence corners are gay with the wine-red flowers of the wake robin, and the tiny white stars of the white strawberry dot the meadows. This is insect time. The air hums with the whirring wings of the mayflies, eelflies, woolly heads, and great mosquitoes. They cling in clouds on all the window screens. They come into the house by hundreds, hanging on my clothes and tangled in the meshes of my hair. The wild cherry trees are festooned with the webs of the tent caterpillars, and the worms are spinning down on long threads from thousands of teeming cocoons. When I walk through the woods, I am decorated with a pair of little live epaulets. The treetops are noisy with a convention of bronze grackles discussing all sorts of burning questions in their harsh, raucous voices. Cheerily, cheerily, cheer up, begs a robin in the white pine. I see you, I see you, warns the meadowlark. We know it, we know it, answer the vireos. The sapsucker is back, beating a tattoo on the house roof. An empty wooden box at the door rings like a war drum under the blows of his hard bill. On the first morning he waked me, I felt a sentimental pleasure in the sound. It seemed springs revelling. On three successive mornings I heard him, with an ever-decreasing joy. On the fourth I sprang out of bed, dazed with sleep, and seizing a stick from a woodpile I let it fly at that diligent fowl, and he dashed away with a squawk. So low may one's love of nature ebb at four o'clock in the morning. Today, as I was dreaming on the porch, I heard a flat-sounding plop, and saw a yard-long snake hanging in a crotch of a poplar, twisting his wicked head and lashing his tail. Immediately a brilliant red star flew down and began darting at the reptile's eyes, screaming and fluttering at a great rate. The snake had probably gone up the tree for eggs, only to be driven down by the small, furious householder. In a moment more he slid down the trunk and disappeared under the house. The snakes on the island are harmless, I am assured. Therefore I do not object to this one's living under the porch, but I hope that he will stay under it, and that I will not step into the middle of his coil some day when he is out sunning himself. The feel of a live snake under my foot would throw me back some millions of years, and I should become at once the prehistoric female fleeing in terror from the ancient enemy. Young rabbits are up, hopping softly down all the paths. They look so exactly like the small brown plaster bunnies sold in the shops at Easter that 
when something frightens them and they freeze motionless under a bush or fern i can scarcely believe that they are not toys after all comical little creatures they eye me with such solemnity i often wonder what makes babies and other young things look so wise they seem to know such weighty secrets that all the rest of the world has long forgotten the old hares also are coming around the house again one ventures so near and drives the others away so fiercely that i half believe he is little peter returned to me over at the farms the spring sowing is done the wheat the barley and the oats and in the long twilights and under the planter's moon the farmers are putting in the last seed potatoes seed planted at the full of the may moon gives the heaviest crops they say in the furrows the big dew worms are working up out of the wet ground to be bait for the fish hooks here our object in fishing being to catch fish we use worms frogs anything that fish will bite leaving flies spoons and sportsmen devices to the campers who fish according to science and rule walking along the shore trail yesterday i came upon black jack bola sitting on a rock fishing tackle beside him he seemed deep in thought and i wondered what new deviltry he was hatching there for black jack is the tease and torment of the countryside it is he who starts the good stories that go the rounds of the stores and firesides and the slower wits fly before his tongue like chaff before the fan if black jack's tales on the other men are good theirs of his performances are quite as well worth hearing there is one of the time when he stole a hogshead of good liquor and carried it off single-handed before the wandering eyes of the sports in camp at les rapides it was black jack who plunged into the icy waters of the lake to the rescue of the half-breed drowning there and it was he who came to the aid of poor terrified rebecca north whose husband had gone suddenly deranged and was running amuck the poor crazy giant has never forgotten the treatment he received at those great hands long after his madness was past he spoke with awe of black jack's powerful grasp again there is the story of the race on the ice of henderson's bay that will never lose its flavor i heard it from uncle dan cassidy one wet sunday afternoon as we sat round the blake's kitchen fire popping corn and capping stories uncle dan has a brogue as thick as cream and a voice as smooth as butter no writer of dialects could ever reproduce his speech translated the tale runs thus there was to be a great race to which any one having a horse was welcome yankee jim branch cousin of black jack's had an old nag fit for little which he entered by way of a joke black jack being temporarily out of horses in consequence of some dealing with a local storekeeper and a chattel mortgage was not included in the company there had long been a feud between black jack and yankee so it was considered a good thing that they were not both to be represented in the contest it was a great occasion the course was staked out on the ice with ceremony little cedar bushes were stuck up to mark the quarter miles and there was a flag at the judge's stand william forrett held joe boggs big silver stopwatch to mark the time andy drapo had a stump of pencil and an old envelope on which to record it and the stakes were as much as two dollars the start was made all horses had run and the race oddly enough lay between boggs gray and yankee's old hack when ping a shot sang out from somewhere far back on the point and yankee's horse dropped like a stone his driver was leaning far out over the wretched creature's back belaboring him with a great gad the halt was so sudden that away he went 
straight on over the horse's head, landing hard on the ice. Up he jumped raging and ran back to the stupefied group at the stand. Is any man in the crowd got his gun? he demanded. Every man was abundantly able to prove that his gun rested beside the door of his own cabin. Is Blackjack in the crowd? inquired Yankee. He was not, and Yankee was immediately convinced that his cousin, Blackjack, had fired that shot. Then, in the midst of the excitement, Blackjack himself appeared, striding unconcernedly down the hill. He had been hidden among the bushes, far back on the point, and unable to endure the thought of Yankee's bragging if his horse should win. He raised his gun and shot the wretched animal at the very instant of victory, and when, in Yankee's mind, the two dollars was as good as spent. History does not tell what Yankee did to get even. Probably nothing, for no one in the countryside cares to interfere with Blackjack. He is known as a man of his hands and a good person to let alone. All this and more I remember when I saw Jack sitting on the shore, but he was not wearing his usual devil-may-care swagger and cheerful grin. Stead, his square, dark face was grim. His great shoulders were bent. His long arms hung relaxed, and his black eyes gazed moodily over the water. He looked tired and gaunt and gray. Presently he rose heavily, and without seeing me, strode off to his boat, stepped in and rowed away, and the next I heard of him, he had enlisted and was gone off to Valcartier to learn to be a soldier. Following his example went little John Bolock and his son Louis, to the despair of poor Rose, and later Charlie McDougall and George Drapeau. It's the meal ticket with those fellows, commented Henry Blake. What do they know about this war? They don't even know what they'll be fighting for. No, it's the money they're after. The mines are not working. There's little or no woodcutting to be done and they're up against it for food. Jack thinks that he'll get a pension for his woman and a bounty for each one of the kids. The recruiting sergeants get so much ahead for every man they bring in, and so, of course, they promise these poor fellows anything. But they find out different after they've enlisted. Black Jack will never stick it out. He'll desert, and if he does, they'll never catch him. He's here today and fifty miles away across the hills tomorrow. He travels like a mink, Black Jack does. Poor Jack, he will find the restraint of barracks and drill intolerable, he who has never known any law but his own will. Will he stand the life? I wonder. End of chapter 18